halt, be men, shouted Sicklegata, the warrior princess of Salerno, as she drove her soldiers towards the enemy. Or at least, that's what she might have said. Learn more about Sicklegata today on Footnoting History. Hi, I'm Samantha, and welcome to Footnoting History. Today I'll be talking about Sicklegata of Salerno. But we'll actually start with another exceptional woman, Anna Kmena, a Byzantine princess who is often considered to be the first female historian. In her book, The Alexiad, a 15-volume history of her own family, Anna describes the deeds of Sicklegata of Salerno, the wife of Robert Giscard. Although Anna was generally contemptuous of Westerners, especially the Crusaders, who she saw as uneducated barbarians lacking in manners and refinement, she admires the Lombard woman. Anna mentions Sicklegata four times. The first time she appears, Sicklegata attempts to dissuade her husband from an unwise war against Byzantium. The second time, we learn that Robert waited for his wife before setting off on his ill-begotten campaign. The third passage shows Sicklegata rallying her husband's troops. This passage is where we learn most about the Lombard woman, so I think it's worth recounting the passage in its entirety. Anna writes, Our men resisted bravely, and the enemy turned back. They were not all picked men. They threw themselves into the sea up to their necks, and when they were near the Roman and Venetian ships, begged for their lives. But nobody rescued them. There is a story about Robert's wife, Gaeta, who used to accompany him on campaign like another palace, if not a second Athena, then seeing the runaways and glaring fiercely at them, shouted in a very loud voice, How far will you run? Halt! Be men! Not quite in those Homeric words, but in something very like them, in her own dialect. As they continued to run, she grasped a long spear and charged at full gallop against them. It brought them to the senses, their senses, and they went back to fight. The fourth and final time Sicklegata appears, it is at her husband's deathbed. As a feminist historian, it's tempting to take Anna Kamenas at her word and to see Sicklegata as a valiant warrior woman. However, we need to keep in mind that Anna may have had her own objectives in this passage. Although Sicklegata is praised as the hero of the day, and indeed compared to a god, the passage also functions to insult the Norman troops. Sure, they beat the Byzantine army, but they were only able to do so when they were inspired by a Lombard woman. By praising Sicklegata and attributing the victory to her, Anna belittles the achievement of the Normans. Moreover, Anna was herself a notable woman and the daughter of a one-time emperor. In describing Sicklegata in these laudatory terms, she may be trying to carve out a greater role for women. Anna and her mother, it seems, had on occasion accompanied her father on campaigns. But unlike the Sicklegata we see in this passage, they were on the sidelines, never directly involved in the conflict. By placing Sicklegata in the midst of combat, Anna might be advocating a greater role for noble women. In short, as much as I might want to, we cannot trust this account of Sicklegata's exploits on the battlefield. We get a different perspective from William of Apulia, a supporter of the Normans, who writes that in the Battle of Dyrrhachium, Robert's wife was wounded by a stray arrow. According to William, she was taken aboard a ship where she recovered from her injury because God did not want mockery to be made of such a lady so noble and so worthy of veneration. 
Here we get confirmation that Sicklegata was present and that she was in close proximity to the combat. She does not, however, take the leading role that Anna attributed to her. So, who was Sicklegata? Was she a valiant warrior woman, a wifely confidant, or a protective mother? In reality, we see her take on all of these roles, particularly the last. As I tell you her story today, I hope that you'll see that noble women could take an active part in political disputes, particularly in areas like southern Italy. This role, however, was often intended to protect the men and their families, their husbands, sons, and even brothers, rather than to gain control for themselves. Sicilgeta of Salerno was born in 1035 into the ruling family of that city. Sometime thereafter, her father was murdered in a coup, but her family's position was restored when her brother Gisalf reclaimed the city. Salerno was at that time the capital of the Lombard Duchy. The Lombards had at one time ruled much of Italy, but they had increasingly found their position in jeopardy until finally they controlled little more than the city and its immediate surroundings. Salerno was home to one of the most prestigious medical schools in Europe, and Sicilgeta appears to have studied medicine there. She was also known for her equestrian skill and her mastery of the sword. This was hardly the stereotypical noblewoman we imagine sitting at home with her needlework. By 1050, Salerno was in peril again. This time, it faced an external threat, the encroachment of the Norman invaders. The Normans, who were descended from the Vikings and were known as some of the most martial people in Europe, had arrived in southern Italy around 1,000. Though they started off as guns for hire, they were slowly carving out a state for themselves. Perhaps the most successful of the Norman invaders was Robert de Hoytville, better known as Robert Giscard or Robert the Cunning. He had arrived in southern Italy along with eight of his brothers in 1047. Robert was known for his exploits on the battlefield and indeed spent much of his time on campaign, but he also understood the value of diplomacy, and that was why in 1058 he set aside his first wife claiming consanguinity in order to marry Sicilgeta. When he claimed that his first marriage was illegal, he disinherited his oldest son, Bohemund, and gained a new connection with Salerno through his wife. Now, Sicklegata and Robert were, it seems, a good match. According to various contemporary sources, Sicklegata was a member of her husband's court and routinely traveled with him providing wise counsel. They also seemed to have been a good, had a good physical connection because the couple would have 10 children together. And after the birth of their second child in 1060, Sicklegata's name appears alongside Robert's in charters granted by the couple. Sicklegate's dynastic claims to Salerno would prove to be valuable to Robert, because in spite of the marriage, Robert's relationship with Sicklegate's brother Gisal eventually soured, and Giscard was forced to besiege the city. In 1076, he cast out his brother-in-law, though at his wife's bequest, he spared his foe's life and allowed him to live in exile in Rome. Thereafter, Robert took control of the city, and Sicklegate's dynastic claims added credibility to his rule. In documents originating after 1076, Sicklegate is consistently referred to as dukes rather than duchessa. Now, this is interesting because dukes is a masculine pronoun, but it could also be used as a gender-neutral title, and it was not uncommon for it to be applied to female rulers when they were in command rather than merely their husband's consort. 
Thus, the use of the title dukes suggests that Sicilgeta was seen as the lord of Salerno. She may have ruled alongside her husband, but she did so as an equal, not merely as his spouse. Patricia Skinner cites Sicilgeta as one example of a woman who was able to use the disruptions in southern Italy to gain power in her own right and to exert influence in politics. According to Valerie Eads, however, Sicilgeta's primary goal was not her own power. Instead, she sought to ensure that her oldest son, Roger, would inherit all of his father's lands. Contemporaries would have seem to have recognized this as her goal as well, and the chronicler Oderic Vitalis accused her of attempting to poison Bohemond, Robert's oldest son by his first marriage, in 1085. There's no real evidence that Sicklegata ever tried to poison Bohemond. In fact, it's actually a common literary trope for women to poison men. But she does seem to have worked hard to ensure her son's succession. In a lot of ways, Roger was at a disadvantage. Although he was the legitimate heir, Roger was younger than his half-brother and did not have his military aptitude. While Bohemond accompanied his father on campaign, Roger was left in Salerno. As an heir to the traditional ruling family, Roger's presence in Salerno may have helped to ensure the family's control of that city, but it did little to protect his right to the rest of his father's dominions. It's entirely possible that Sicilgeta insisted on accompanying her husband into the battlefield in order to protect her son's inheritance and to limit Bohemond's influence. After Robert died, a death in which some also believed Sicklegata to be complicit, she continues to appear as dukes in contemporary records and did not relinquish her power to her son until she had reached an agreement with Bohemond which would ensure Roger's rule. Once her son was secure, Sicklegata retired to the Abbey of Monte Cassino where she remained for the rest of her days, and here I really do mean the rest of her days because she was buried there and remains there to this day. This final phase of her life reveals how little we really know about this woman. We remember her as a warrior. Whether or not she rallied her husband's troops at Dyrrachium, she was certainly closer to combat than many women of her times. And although I didn't get the chance to talk about it, we know of at least one instance in which she was left in command of the siege while her husband went on to another battle. We can also see her as the fertile wife who accompanied her husband and gave him many children. She was certainly a devout mother and eager to defend her son's rights and to ensure the survival of her dynasty. But her retirement suggests that she was more than that, too. In the end, she was able to step down even though her son was not a particularly competent ruler. Her adoption of religious vocation at the end of her life reveals her as a devout individual. She's often credited with endorsing or even manufacturing Robert's relationship with the papacy. But in the end, Sicklegate's efforts to protect her son's interests were of to little avail. Although her son went on to rule, it was ultimately Robert's brother, also named Roger, who would inherit Robert's territories. It was his son who became Roger II and who founded the Kingdom of Sicily, which would last in one form or another until 1860. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. See you next week.